0: Christmas, when you think about this time of year, it's filled with mystery. It's filled with the miraculous. Jesus, fully God, becoming fully man. Two natures simultaneously. It's mind-boggling. It's beyond comprehensive if we think about it too long, no doubt. But what this means for us is unspeakably great. As we hear a story like Tommy, it leaves us Speechless. It causes us to rejoice at the same time. And today, what I want us to see in Hebrews chapter 2 is that the coming of Christ, the Christmas story, the humble incarnation of Jesus, it it brings something to us that truly leaves us speechless, I think, at the end of the day. In fact, at the 9 a.m. hour, I I saw people smiling with with smiles in response to some of the things that that we're going to read today. And and I pray today it, it causes that kind of joy to bubble up in you as well. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and give you, let me give you four points that we're gonna look at today and then we're gonna, we're gonna revisit these. But I want us to see today because the context of, of this scripture is the humanity of Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus becoming man, what that means for you and I. And the first thing it means today is this, that, that enables you and I, humanity, the possibility to regain what was lost. To regain what was lost. Secondly, it enables you and I to join Christ and share in his forever reign. We'll talk about that. Thirdly, this morning, it delivers us from two great enemies. Forever. Forever. His coming. It also grants us merciful help unlike any other. That can only come from one, and that's from Christ. And so today, the goal of what we're going to read, by the way, is that you and I would not drift away from Christianity. That you and I would hold Christ dear. That we would trust him through the ups and downs, through the seasons of life, whatever comes our way, that we would persevere in trusting in him, having confidence in him, and it would cause us not to neglect a great salvation, but instead to rejoice in such a great salvation. And so that's the goal this morning. That's what chapter two, one through four is about that Trudy read, and we saw last week as well, but I want you to remember that today. That's the goal. And so how is the writer going to encourage you and I to do that today? Because that's the goal, is to say, church, leave here holding tightly to Christ and rejoice in the great salvation that you have. And here's how he's going to do it. Look at verse 5 today. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. That's a very interesting little verse. But the first word right there is for, the word because. And it links back to verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2. And what it means is that church, don't drift away, don't neglect the great salvation because of this point. And what's the point? He says that the world to come will not be subjected to angels. Why does he bring up angels? Last week, we learned that the church was getting wrapped up in angelology. They were getting wrapped up in the worship of angels and placing Jesus on the same level of angels, even seeing Jesus as maybe an angel, uh, putting the worship of angels uh, in place, things like that. And so the author continues with, with knocking down such uh, hideous ideas that angels would have any kind of um, superiority. But Jesus is superior. That's the goal. And so he continues that theme, but he says right here that angels will not have subjected to them the world to come. Now, remember what the writer is doing. Last week, he shows us the great deity of Jesus Christ, that he truly is God, that he is overall, that he is superior to everything, to angels, everything. Today, here's what he's going to do, is he's going to show the humanity of Christ. The reason for that is some in the church um, did not believe in the deity of Christ, but they also could not handle the humanity of Christ. And so many were drifting. Many were throwing away this idea of Christianity and drifting back to different things they believed in before. And so the writer wants us to see, wanted them to see back in the first century, that the humanity of Christ is crucial The fact that God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man is vital. And the reason it's vital, and the first point that we're going to hear this morning, is because he came to regain what was lost. And here's how he's going to talk about it. He's going to talk about the fact that the world to come is not subjected to angels. What is the world to come? The world to come is specifically the idea of looking into the future and seeing that Christ is bringing um, with him in his second advent new heavens and new earth. Did you know that as Christians, that's our destiny? Heaven is not our final resting place. Oh, we want to go to heaven. We want to be with Christ where he is in glory right now. And when we see him, we will be like him. But the final destiny of Christians is the world to come, is the new heavens and the new earth. The world to come, we get this idea back in chapter 1, verse 6, where last week we read when he again brings the firstborn into the world. The idea of that was not the first coming of Jesus, but the second advent, his second coming. And when he comes in all his glory, he will bring new heavens and new earth. And what the writer is saying here, at that time, that world, new heavens and new earth, will not be subjected to angels. And so it lends the question this morning, who will it be subjected to? And I think the answer is very interesting this morning. In fact, look at what he says in, in response to this in verse 6 through 8. He says, but one has testified somewhere. It's almost like the writer here has a senior moment, right? Just kidding. I don't think so. But have you ever talked to someone and, and maybe you sh- were sharing Scripture with them and you, you said, well, maybe, you know, somewhere in Scripture, um, You know, somewhere in Proverbs, it says this. You don't remember the exact address or whatever, and and that's what the writer really does here. But somewhere in Scripture, it says this. Look what it says. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And so the writer is quoting Psalm 8. But then look what he says at the end. He says, for in subjecting all things to him, so the question is, who is the word him here? Then he says, he left nothing that is subject not to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So this is a little confusing maybe. But who's he talking about? What is Psalm 8 talking about? Specifically right here is talking about man. It's talking about humanity. When he uses the phrase the son of man, if you go back to uh, Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel the son of man. Not um, giving that title like he does to Christ, but sometimes humanity, man, is referred to that. Specifically here, Saul made, and what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is man. Man is created, you and I, in the order, uh, in the image of God. And specifically here, it says in verse 7, we were made a little lower than the angels. But then right here, it's also saying here that we will have dominion over God's creation one day. That the creation to come, the world to come, will be subjected to us. You might read that and you might feel a little weird thinking about that or maybe even communicating that. Really? I thought everything was subjected to to God. And it is. But what is this speaking of? What this means is that the coming world, this new heavens and new earth, is part of our great salvation. And part of that is that the world to come will be subjected to you and I. That is our destiny. You think about The Garden of Eden. You think about Adam. Before the fall of man, what was subjected to him? Creation. You might say, well, how? You remember, who did Adam name? The animals, right? But all of that is lost when sin enters the picture. And Christ came to regain that. In the new heavens and the new earth, he will grant to us dominion over creation. He will restore what has been lost. But look at verse 8. It says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, subjected to man. We don't see that. How do we not see that today? Here's how we don't see that. A fire in Oakland or tornado in Alabama. That's how we don't see it. We don't see it, somebody said at the 9 o'clock gathering, through a disobedient dog. (laughs) Right? Right? Things are not subjected to us right now. We can't stop diseases. For many of you in here this morning sniffling or sore throat. You're not feeling well. We cannot overcome that completely. Sure, we can take something. We have cures for different diseases and different things. But in the end, we all still die. We're still overcome by creation. Why? Why? Because right now, as verse 8 says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We don't see it. So we experience fires. We experience death. We experience earthquakes. We experience destructive things and the wrecking of havoc on our lives. We experience that. So we don't see this yet in Psalm 8. It's not to come. It had not come yet. But it will come. It will come. So what then? (laughs) in light of that what then we have this promised future but what about now and how is this going to come about this dominion that one day those who belong to Christ will have look at verse 9 it helps us answer that it says here but we do see him right so we don't see this creation being subjected to man right now but we do see him we see Jesus and that's the key today is seeing and savoring Jesus Christ is the key to everything you hear today. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what we do see now, we see Jesus. And he was made for a little while lower than the angels. How was he made a little lower than the angels? In his coming. In verse seven, it speaks of you and I being made a little lower than the angels. So it's talking about humanity. So what does that mean about Jesus? He took on flesh. He took on humanity, being made a little lower than the angels. And then it speaks of his suffering of death, that he died. But then it says, he is now in the place crowned with glory and honor. So when you read this, what does this mean? It it means what we read back in verses 6, 7, and 8, which is quoting Psalm 8, is that Jesus has fulfilled that. Jesus has fulfilled it. Jesus being made a little lower than the angels, taking on human flesh, suffering and dying for us, but now ruling in all glory and honor. You see, Jesus' coming and his death enables us to regain which has been lost. And how does that happen? He's taken on flesh for us. He's died for us. So that one day, what was lost in creation before the fall can now be regained through him. And Paul's writing to the second Corinthians, he says in verse 17 of chapter five, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's what he wants to do first for you and I this morning, is he wants us to know him personally. He wants us to be made into a new creation. And how does that come about? By trusting and believing in Christ, So that the things of our life, sin and all that has taken us down, guilt and shame, can pass away. Behold, new things can come. He wants to give us new life. And eventually, he wants us to give a a, a destiny, a future, where what was lost before, having creation subjected to us, now is going to be regained because Christ has regained it for us and coming. And suffering and dying. So he's regaining what was lost. That's the hope that we have today. But I want us to see also, which we've referred to lightly this morning, is that also when he comes, that one day we will get to share in his reign over creation. And how do we see that? Look at verse 10. We've seen a little bit of it already, but look what verse 10 says. For it was fitting for him, for God himself, for whom are all things, and through him are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. I want to ask you this morning, as as we read that text, I I want to ask you this. um, You guys have any Christmas lists laying around the house? Anybody, any kids writing Christmas lists these days still? Or are they just texting them, right? And texting you pictures of what they want, right? Some of you experiencing that? I did see on our counter this morning, I was reminded of this, a little sticky note that uh, had a list of things that, that were wanted uh, by one of my uh, children this morning. Um, last night, I, I got something at a Christmas party that I've always wanted, I don't know if if you see this this morning, there'll be some snickering in the crowd from staff and elders, but at our staff and elders Christmas gathering, uh, we did a little white elephant deal, and I got, every, I got something uh, I always wanted. This is a temperature and humidity sensor. I've always wanted one of these, so I'm so grateful, uh, Jerry Webb, for that. Thank you. I've got it with me this morning. By the way, Jerry, the humidity is 40% in here. Temperature is about 77. That's not too bad. A little warm, but that's all right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> We have Christmas lists. Let me ask you this. If Jesus had a Christmas list, what would be on it? You ever thought about that? What would be on it? We probably give many different answers, right? Let let me read to you in light of this text what what I think his his wish, his desire would be. To help with that, here's another verse. John 17, 24. Listen to what, what Jesus prays. Listen to what he prays. He says, Father, I desire that they also, so he's talking about his disciples, he's talking about those who have trusted in him. He says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. See Jesus' desire this morning? He desires that those who have been given to him, those who have trusted in him, would be with him and would know and experience his glory. And then he says, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What I think that means is that Jesus wants us to, to be with him, to experience this mind-blowing love that he has for you and I, front and center, forever. He wants us to taste that, and to be with him, and to experience God's love forever. That's Jesus' Christmas list right there. That's what he wants. And that's what this author is saying. Now look at verse 10 again. It says, It was fitting for God, for whom are all things, and through him are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. I want you to look at that this morning. It it means that God the Father, who is creator of all things... And for his glory's sake, he's making all this happen. He's restoring all that has been lost through Jesus' suffering. For what end? To bring many sons to glory. You see, Jesus has suffered. He has entered into glory at the right hand of the Father where he reigns today. And he will bring those who have trusted in him, who are united with him, and are truly his brothers, which we're going to see in a second, to glory. To ultimately share in his reign of the new heavens and the new earth. And so what is glory? It's the place where Jesus is. Ultimately, it's the new heavens and the new earth. Then look at verse 10. A little closer. It says right here that it was fitting for God to perfect. The middle of verse 10. The author of their salvation through suffering. What does that mean? It it means that God perfected Jesus Through his sufferings. And that Jesus is the author of our salvation. So so what does that mean? That he perfected Jesus through suffering? Did Jesus need perfecting? And so what does that mean right there? Simply what that means, because you read that text and there could be some confusion. Jesus was not disobedient whatsoever. But it means Jesus learned obedience. He was perfected. Now in the sense that he was sinful, not at all, but it's the idea of this that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering, and through suffering into tested and proven obedience. And you might sit back this morning and say, well, what's, what's the significance of that? Why was this the path? Think about it this way. Jesus had to succeed where you and I failed. Jesus had to succeed where you and I failed. And he did that. He did that through obedience to the Father, through suffering on the cross. He became our champion. He became our pioneer. That's what he became. But he had to succeed where we failed. We are disobedient. He is obedient, proven and tested. And so look at verse 11 through 13. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from the Father. So who's he talking about here? For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. And those who are sanctified, those who he's bringing to glory with him, the sons of glory. Who are those? Those are the redeemed, those who have trusted in Christ, are from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So it's the idea that those who have trusted in Christ are brothers with him. And Jesus is big brother and we're brothers with him. And so it's got this family language going on here. And listen to what it says next. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is, the writer is is giving these words as though Jesus is saying it. And it's the idea that the children of God are are singing praises to God. And, and so what it's saying here is Jesus identifies with them in doing the same thing, that he gives praise to God. And then again in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And so it's this idea that Jesus is identified with those who have placed their trust in him. They're united together. It, it's a family and so Jesus sanctifies. He is sanctifying those who have trusted in him. They are the, the sons that Jesus is bringing to glory. And they all have one father. They're united together. They're the church. And it's the idea that one day they will reign with Jesus, with him forever. Now, he ultimately has authority over all, but we will join him in that reign. That's the idea. And even the world to come will be subjected Ultimately to him, but also to us. Amazing. And to look at verse 14, the third point this morning that I want you to see, is that the coming of Christ delivers you and I from two enemies forever. And how do we see that? It says, therefore, in verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And so again, the author is connecting us back to the incarnation of Christ, him taking on humanity. And here he says that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, and that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Now, The point here is this, that for the brothers of Christ, meaning those he's bringing to glory with him, those who have trusted in him, to Christians, those who will share in his forever reign, he has taken on human flesh, he has died For them, he has gone through death just like we one day will go through death unless Jesus comes back first. He has embraced suffering. He has died for us, showing us the truest of loves. He has shown here, the author has, that Jesus was born to die, but why? So that he could render powerless Satan and that you and I could be free from the fear of death. Do we have any greater enemies than that? Do we have any other enemies that are greater than Satan himself and death? No. The point the author is making here is Jesus had to become one of us and one with us to do anything for us. He had to identify with us. And so he will suffer and he will die just like one day we will go through that. When you think about death here, death is not something, you know. If somebody calls you up on the phone and says, "Hey, you want to go to Starbucks and talk about death today?" Who's going to sign up for that and be like, "Oh, sure, yeah. well, Give me a latte. I'll be there in a few." I mean, not many of us are going to be like, "Yeah, that's that's that sounds cool. I'd love to spend an hour doing that." I Miss, mean, you know what I mean? Um, but death is real. Death is real. A- as a child, I was one who. Um, was fearful of death and and fearful of hell. A young kid. I remember four and five, I would wake up at night and no doubt, under some of the preaching I sat under, good preaching, but definitely hell, fire and brimstone type preaching. Grateful for it, very grateful for it. But I remember there was nights that I would go to bed and I would just be fearful of death. I would have dreams. It was at times a little odd, but times when I look back on that, that's how Christ led me to him, is I was enslaved to the fear of death, no doubt. And it was evident. I would wake up my mom at 2 a.m. in the morning, and we would have bathroom talks on the floor. The bathroom, um, I was just on the floor. But, um, and we would talk about death, and we would talk about hell. We'd talk about how you could be free from that. And so some of us have that kind of fear. We go through those things. We go through such fear, we maybe have been enslaved to such fears before. But today in our world, the slavery to fear of death looks a little different. And here's how it may look. Here's how it may look for some of us today. Where we're enslaved to the fear of death by acting like we're not afraid of death to the point where we're indifferent to it. And, And here's what I mean, is that we can go through life And live our life, uh, different focus on different things, go to work, go and play, do hobbies, uh, you name it, fill in the blank. But any time death comes up, we want to move past it quickly. I mean, we'll sit and we'll talk about all the issues of the day. We'll talk about, you know, politics, and we'll talk about, you know, the fact that the Mavericks somehow beat a good team last night, Chicago Bulls. I mean, we'll sit, we'll sit and we'll talk about things like that. We'll talk about a streak of the Cowboys living, you know, winning 11 in a row. We're cool with going that, man. We're cool with that kind of lingo. We're, we're, we're down with that. But if you start talking death, change the subject, right? Let's move on quickly. We're, we we want to shut it out. We want to close our eyes to it. We want to shut our ears off to even thinking about it. So what we do is, we a lot of times can look like we're not enslaved to it, even though we are, by just doing and doing and never thinking once even about it. We live in denial. It's escape. And that's how many people deal with the fear of death, is they escape by just falling into life as it is and saying, well, I'll deal with it later. Or what is will be. But we've got to deal with it. Jesus came so that we could face death. Jesus came so that we could overcome the fear of death, that we could face death head on. He has delivered us from the two greatest enemies of all, Satan himself and death. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory for those who know Christ. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is rendered both powerless through dying on the cross and through his death. He's given the knockout blow to the enemy. And he has now made death for the believer a great victory. That's what Jesus laying in a manger means for the believer. But what's interesting about this text, when you look at verse 16, and I I, I don't know how it lands on you, but look at verse 16 and what it says. It says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of. Do you know what that means? It means this. Rendering Satan powerless and bringing the overcoming of the fear of death so that we're free from it. He renders that kind of help to Christians, but not to angels. Have ever thought about that before? The, the, the angel, an angel who falls and becomes a demon is not redeemed. It's not redeemable. But you and I, we are. Who's smiling? Wow. The angels, they've seen him. They've been with him. They, they, they've experienced the glory of heaven. And yet some will fall. But they don't get the help you and I get. It's not offered to them. And then lastly, as we close this morning, look at the last two verses, 17 through 18. Therefore, a lot of therefores this morning. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Again, he had to become man. He had to bear the nature of humanity upon himself so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He had to become like us, why? To become our, pers- our merciful and faithful high priest. What was the priest? The priest was the mediator between God and God man, he would offer up sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. But blood of goats and sheep could not satisfy the righteousness of God. But Jesus, taking on flesh, becoming like us in all things, and dying for us, he was that perfect sacrifice that could satisfy the righteousness of God. And that could appease the wrath of God. That word propitiation right there, if you read that word and you're like, what in the world is that? All right? It's kind of like earlier, John said hark to sell some. I mean, how many of you guys know what hark means, right? Anyone know what it means, right? I had to Google it real quick just to be assured to myself, but I was talking to someone and it was kind of interesting. We're like, oh, I wonder what hark, you know, what does it really mean? Listen, right? Listen, harken, right? Actually, there's a f- few meanings. It's very interesting. The probi- pr- propitiation, say that again, propitiation. What does that mean? It it means to satisfy the righteousness of God, literally to to appease his wrath. And so Jesus did that by bearing the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. The penalty that you and I deserve, he bore it for us. And so the righteousness of God is is justified. It's, It's satisfied in Christ's death. And he did that so our sins could be forgiven. And so that we could have a relationship with God. And that's why he came. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you and I. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The only weapon that Satan has to destroy us in physical death is sin. And if your sin is forgiven this morning, then guess what? The devil is disarmed. Because Christ disarmed it through his death on the cross. He's done that for you and I. But not only that, but he has sympathized with us as well. And you look at this text this morning and you say, where do you get that? Look at verse 18. It says, for since he himself was tempted, in what? In that which he has suffered. We see that word tempted right there. And it doesn't mean the idea that he's been tempted like we have with greed or lust. Now, we see that in other places. There's other verses that talk about that. But here, it means that he was tempted with in which the things in which he suffered. And so what does that mean? It's related to death. It's related to death. And when you think about the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, what could something like that bring on to somebody? You think about when you've maybe experienced the death of a loved one. Maybe you've gone through periods of suffering with, with illness or whatever, what can stuff like that bring on? Resentfulness? Self pity? It can bring on despair. It can even cause someone to stop believing in the goodness of God, right? That can happen. I think that's what he's talking about here. Is that Jesus understands? He understands he's passed through suffering, he's passed through even the dying experience. Yet, he has stayed faithful in believing and trusting in the goodness of God through it all. And so, what does that mean for you and I? It means, as it says in verse 18, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, meaning to the help of you and I, when we go through seasons like that with suffering and darkness. He is there as our merciful help to allow us to keep holding on to the goodness of God and to believe that. And there are going to be seasons where it's going to be hard. We're going to want to drift. We're gonna, instead of drawing nearer to God, we, we're going to want to drift away, be tempted to do that. And what the author says right here is Christ understands. He gets it. He's lived it. He's been through it. And so this morning, why did Jesus come? He came so that what was lost can be regained and restored. Have you experienced that today? Are you a new creation in Christ? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, praise God for his great salvation. If not, trust him. Trust Christ. It also means for us that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, that's our destiny. We will reign with him forever. Guys, that's real stuff. The world might hear that and say, that's foolish. Some people in here might say, what? What are you talking about? Hey, read your Bible. It's real. That's our destiny. And third it means the two greatest enemies, death and Satan. He's conquered them for us. And so what does that mean for us? We don't have to be enslaved to the fear of death. And so then what do we have to fear? Nothing, nothing. And then when life gets tough, he's there. He's our help. That's why Jesus came. I pray you believe that this season. I pray you see and savor Christ that your eyes would be fixed on him who came to dwell among us. Let's pray.